Well, thank you again for uh, being here this morning. Again, if you were here last night, this is a, a, at least something of a vote of confidence. You, you know what you got you getting yourself in for, so I appreciate you being here. Uh, now, my brother Ray, who introduced me last night, gave me a little bit more credit than, than due. He uh, said I'm a New Testament expert. Well, that's not me. Yeah? Uh, Dr. Miguel Echeverria, who's a member here, he is. I'm a humble theologian, though. And so uh, I teach theology at Southeastern. And the way we do theology is having a, a certain methodology. We begin with the Bible, but then we check our understanding um, by the church throughout history of the times of the cultures. Then we ask, what should we believe because of this? And then what should we do? So that, that's how kind of we're, we're moved today. We begin with Scripture, looking at Scripture in terms of work as God created it, work as it has been affected by the fall, the difference Christ makes, and work as we will be in the eternal state. So that will be our procedure. That's why our methodology. Uh, so let's talk about this topic for a second. Why is work so important? Well, the major part of our lives, really, isn't it? Yeah. When you're working, well, not just uh, your, your job where you get paid, but then you come home, you work with your kids because parenthood is work, and then you uh, work in your yard and things like that. Now, now some people will say, well, I find yard work relaxing. Come relax in my yard anytime, yeah. <laughs> I'll do that all yeah. For me, yard work is work, okay? And so there's different types of work. And so even those retired people, again, we mentioned our table, uh, you can retire from a job, but you never retire from work because God designed us to be workers. So that's our topic. But let's talk for a second. It's a little bit difficult to define work as opposed to a hobby. So, so what makes work work and different than a hobby or, or leisurely activities? Well, uh, lots of different definitions, but I think most of them say work is what you're obliged to do. You have to do this to make, make basic needs of yourself or others. Leisure or hobbies, they're more discretionary stuff. You don't have to do it. You get to do those things. But sometimes there's a fine line between those two. You know, I love teaching. Yeah? I get to do this. It feels like this is almost a, a pleasure rather than a duty. Uh, but this is basically the idea. So work is something you're obliged to do to meet your own needs, the needs of others around you, those types of things. And so we're looking first on terms of, of work as God intended it. So we're looking at creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That, that, that's the Bible storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. What is work by creation? How it's impacted by the fall? What it's like under redemption? What it will be in the consummation? So first thing, work as created and intended by God. And the first thing is to say, this is something that's not the result of the fall there in the beginning. This is something that's natural for us to do. We're created. We're designed to be workers. And again, not just get a paycheck, but to be productive, make a difference in someone else's life, those types of things. And so we're designed to work. And it begins in Genesis 1 uh, with a couple of interesting things there. Uh, uh, the first thing it says in verse 26, it says we're going to be ruling over the fish, the birds, the sea of our lives. So we're in some way over creation. Again, down in verse 20, it goes further in terms of be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue is kind of an interesting word there. What needs, this is before sin. 
So what needs to be subdued? Well, I think the idea here is that creation is wild, and we're responsible to tame it, make it useful. Uh, again, in the, later on in the second chapter, Adam is told to, to the garden, work and take care of it. So here's the first aspect of our work. We're given to be stewards of this creation. Take care of it, subdue it, manage it, use it, those types of things. And so um, uh, this is something there. So some, where there's a lot of discussion about, about creation care. I'm not talking about, about political stuff. I'm not talking about God's commands to us. So if part of our work is being responsible for creation. Hadn't done a very good job thus far. Okay. So, but this is something we're called to do. But then back to Genesis 1, talks about first words to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number. Uh, well, part of our work is parenthood. And parenthood is work, right? Begins with your wife's labor. Okay? We call that labor. And then the work really begins, yeah? Uh, kids, newborns, then the, the different ages of life, those types of things. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've done nothing that's been uh, more absorbing, uh, more difficult, and more rewarding than parenting two kids. And again, uh, they're in their 30s now, uh, but it's not done yet. I'm more concerned about them now than I was 20 years ago. Because, uh, again, they're making more decisions now that I don't have any part in. I think when, when your kids are at home, you have the illusion of some type of control. <laughs> Once they go away, you lose that illusion. <laughs> yeah, They're out there making their decisions, things like that. And they may call you for counsel advice, but they're making so, – so this is a continuing role of parenthood. Uh, so, again, uh, we talked last night about maybe there can be some reasons for uh, choosing to limit your family's size, but part of the work laid on us is the work of parenthood here. But then again, back to verse 28, it says, again, uh, fill the earth, subdue it. And part of that subduing has been seen as using the materials of creation for the good of people. Not just food, but think about this. In, in creation, there's wood and metal that we use to make musical instruments. And there's chemicals, electricity we can harness and develop food machines. And most of you have your, your phone last night. Well, again, someone developed that. That was someone's work, those types of things. Beyond that, we write books and poems, sculptures, paintings. We have skyscrapers, roller coasters, all those types of things. That's what we call culture. And part of human work is to develop these things that we call culture. That's part of what's assigned to us as humans. So, so this is something at creation. It's good. Uh, there should be some sense of satisfaction that you, 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 you mow your grass, for example, and you look, and it looks really nice, right? You feel a sense of satisfaction. You've done a good piece of work. Well, this is God's desire that you find satisfaction in your work. It becomes more difficult, though, because of the fall. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 3. And look at the results of sin in terms of work. Now, part of the, the, uh, the, the pr problem with, with sin is, again, the, now that the natural order no longer works with us, it works against us. And so, for example, for Eve, um, her pain in childbearing is increased. Look at verse 17 for Adam. It says, Because you listened to your wife, ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed 
is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, what's he saying here? Because there's sin, work becomes painful toil. Uh, from, from a good thing that God designed us for, gives satisfaction, pleasure, takes care of our needs, those types of things, work now becomes something painful toil. He says the ground will grow thorns and thistles. Why is it that a garden left to itself doesn't grow crops? Grows thorns and thistles. Uh, because this is the distorting effect of sin. Uh, so sin makes works that God designed for us to be good for us. Now it includes at least painful toil. Now again, I love teaching. I love doing this. For my job, painful toil is grading papers. Stacks and stacks of papers. That's painful toil. Every job I've had has had some elements of goodness, but some elements also of painful toil, those types of things. And again, uh, so don't be surprised if you have some things that are dull, even dangerous, those types of things. Now, other people say, I love my work. It's the people I do it with. They're fallen. <laughs> They're very fallen. And having to deal with them is what makes my work no longer pleasant, but painful to all those types of things. So this is one of the effects of sin. Work itself becomes more difficult, uh, more uh, dull, uh, more boring, more laborious. doesn't cooperate with us. The people we work with, they're also fallen. So that makes a dif difficulty. Then beyond that, work becomes an arena for temptation. One of the ways that Satan attacks us. For example, in some jobs, you may be tempted to cut some corners ethically. Even your boss asks you to lie about your product. Exaggerate. So there's some, some temptation there to do things that are unjust, that lack integrity. The Old Testament, the, the, the minor prophets uh, said, injustice, oppression, doing dishonor, that's not of God, those types of things. So work provides an arena for temptation. It's also uh, some people uh, neglect work and they're guilty of the sin of laziness. Proverbs talks about that. But probably for most of us, the biggest danger, work becomes an idol. We worship our work. Look at Luke 14. When Jesus saw some obstacles to following him, he put examples from the, the field of work. For example, Luke 14 18 and 19. And when these are those who've been invited to their wedding feast, the lamb, he says, they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five ox, yoke of oxen. I'm on my way home to try them out. Please excuse me. So pastors will often hear a guy say, well, pastor, I would be at church, but I've got to work. It's accepted that work comes first. So I've got to work. I'll miss church. Well, what's your priority there? Uh, well, quite often, work comes first in our lives and first in our affections, those types of things. And if this is the case, work becomes an idol. And especially for men, I think this is our temptation. Work becomes your identity. 
It's who you are. So if someone asks you, who are you? You'll tell them what you do. For I'm a farmer. I'm a teacher. IBM, IT worker, those types of things. Well, that's our identity. And this makes retiring very threatening for some people. Why is Tom Brady still playing football? Doesn't need the money. It's who he is. And this is why they have difficulty retiring, because this is their, their identity. There's a book came out in the 70s called Work, Play, and Worship. And his thesis is we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Oh, my, that's, that's really good. We worship our work. It's number, it's our idol. We work at our play. Now, I'm, I'm guilty of this. When we go on vacation as a family, I schedule it. Detail itinerary. And when our kids were teenagers, we went to Orlando. We had six parks in six days. And about half of the bar says, I'm taking a day off, yeah? <laughs> this is a vacation. And you've made it like work. So we, play, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Well, this is the danger. Then. Work could be good. becomes an arena of temptation. Unethical practices that you may be asked to do, exaggerate your product benefits, those types of things. Or maybe the boss says, tell them I'm not here. Yeah. Well, he's asking you to lie for it. Or things like this, uh, where you worship your work, it becomes an idol for you. So, so God made this thing to be a good thing. Because of the fall, work becomes twisted, distorted, no longer serving its proper purpose. So creation, fall, redemption. What difference does Christ make in your life as a worker? Well, for the believer, work becomes a vocation, a calling. This is something I was talking with one guy last night. He said, uh, I used to struggle with my work because I wasn't a preacher until I read a book called Your Work Matters to God. Yeah. And this is true for every believer. Uh, uh, again, you do what you do because this is God's call. If you don't think that your work is, is God's will for your life, well, you should because even to, no matter how mundane, how blue-collar, uh, uh, Paul said, you serve the Lord Christ. He said that to slaves, by the way, their work wasn't very pleasant, very exalted, but this is why this is like you serve the Lord Christ. That makes every lawful job a vocation. The way you glorify God, those types of things. And so uh, this has importance for your life. So you, know, you work a new, new status, vocation, but then new motivation, new goals for work. You don't work to get rich. You work to glorify God and bless others. Keep those two things focused. We work, and you know, Paul says, whatever you do, do everything to glorify God. Well, you work to the glory of God and to the benefit of your neighbor. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so and one way that we do that is by doing our work well. That glorifies God and it blesses your neighbor. In fact, you should think, what I do should bring benefit to someone. Yeah. So trace out the end user. So your, your IBM worker, you know, you're making computers that people use. Makes their lives easier, better. If you're working at a dairy farm, you're making producing milk that people can drink. Yeah. 
every job you should trade with the end user. Someone should benefit, even in a household situation. If you're washing clothes, well, people benefit having clean clothes. So you should trace that. Think through the who benefits from my work? How am I blessing and loving my neighbor in doing this job? That should give you a sense of satisfaction. Someone benefits. I am loving my neighbor by doing my job well. Now, if you can't see anyone that benefits from your work, should you be doing it? If, if there's no, no one that benefits, for example, I had some, some people that were struggling. They said, I'm a tobacco farmer. My product makes, gives people cancer. I'm not sure this is something I should do as a Christian. I even had a woman who was an accountant for a tobacco company. She was struggling. Am I doing something good here? Well, this is, you should be able to say, I'm doing something that glorifies God and it blesses others. Those are the goals for work as a Christian. God's glorified when we love our neighbor. And we do that by doing our work and doing it well. So, so this should also affect the way we do it. If we're trying to love our neighbor, well, then you treat them with generosity, with love, courtesy, those types of things, and say those for whom we work and those with whom we work, being a Christian should impact that. You should be known at your place of work for being one of the kindest, most helpful, uh, most respectful people uh, that's on the job, those types of things. Now, of course, the greatest way we, we help people uh, is by introducing them to Christ. So how do we witness at work? This is a touchy subject because we're not paid to witness. So got to be careful. We don't cross some lines here. We don't want to take advantage of people, those types of things. Uh, so uh, first thing, don't let witnessing detract from doing your job. If you do, you're cheating your employer, and that's not Christian. Now, look at a couple of verses with me. 1 Thessalonians 4.12. I think the first aspect of witnessing at work is, again, doing your work to, to the best of your ability. 1 Thessalonians 4.12. We'll back up to verse 11 to get the context. Paul says, you should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So you do your best, uh, so you're in the respect of outside. They say, well, I, I don't know about his religion, but he does this job really well. So that's your first witness is doing your job well. Look at Titus 2.10, a similar idea there, Titus 2.10. He says something about slaves here, about, about their work ethic. He says, show your master you can be fully trusted so that in every way it will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So the way you work makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So in your work situation, don't do anything that would detract from your, you're doing a good job. In fact, do your job very, very well. But then when there's opportunity, I like the phrase, expose your faith rather than imposing your faith. Expose your faith, don't impose your faith. So they say, how was your weekend? Went to this great men's conference, yeah? We talked about this very thing, yeah? Work, 
Well, you can expose your faith here that you go to church. Talk about what you heard at church. Those types of things. Well, that's not detracting from your work. Casual conversation, those types of things. Then if they show interest, well, then say, let's have lunch together. Sometimes we're not responsible to work. We have conversation. And I think this will be increasingly important because here's the reality. What's the one context where believers and non-believers have the most contact? Places of work. Now, most of our leisure time we spend with our Christian friends or our families. They're Christians. But in the workplace, you don't get to choose who you work with. And so in God and His province, they put you alongside some people who are very, very needy. They need Christ. Well, your job is to expose your faith. You're a fisherman. You're throwing the bait in the water. Don't jump in the water and force it in his throat. But you expose your faith. And if God's working, they'll ask a question. Let's have lunch together. Get together for coffee Saturday morning after work. Those types of things. Have dinner together after work. Those types of things where there can be something, a context for talking with them, sharing the gospel with them more, more specifically. And then the, the last positive thing for work as a believer benefits you. And this is the way that, that you're able to make money, take care of your family, those types of things. Look at, again, Titus 3.14. Another one of these, these verses on work. Titus 3.14 says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Paul says, don't live an unproductive life. Your work allows you to live a productive life. You're blessing others. And the fact that, that you make some money allows you to help them financially or to give to this church financially, things like that. So again, this is one reason you work, to have something to help others. Paul says, you'll provide for your own needs and have enough to help others too. Uh, so you give. And then one final thing we don't often think about, I think God purposes for our work to further our sanctification. When you work with difficult people, unreasonable bosses, cranky customers, it gives you a chance to show patience, the patience, forbearance. It furthers your sanctification. So this is one of the concepts that God puts us in to further our sanctification. And this is what I like to work as a believer, okay? So work as is a good thing. God intended us to be workers. Because of the fall, work becomes painful toil, an arena for temptation, uh, temptation especially to idolatry. In Christ, you get a new boss. You serve Christ. So it's dignified work. You glorify God and bless your neighbor. Uh, you provide for your needs, those types of things. You're able to help others along the way there. You're able to witness to your coworkers, those types of things. And then it, it blesses you too, develops you. What will work be like in heaven? Will we work in heaven? Is heaven an eternal day off? Well, well, there's a verse that says, Revelation 22, 3, God's servants will serve him. And I'm not sure how much to read, but it seems that heaven won't be in uh, inactivity. It will be activity. And one thing that's just interesting, in the end there'll be a new create, new heavens and new earth. New heavens and a new earth. Well, Will we be stewards of that creation too? Have the same type of mandate to use the resources of that creation 
for the blessing of others. Now, I don't want to push this too far. Uh, there's a book by, uh, by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. He speculates on technology, inventions, all these types of, that could be part of the new creation. Uh, that's at least possible. But here's the thing. If God made us to be workers in the beginning, before the fall, won't there be work in the new creation, recovering where there's no longer the effects of the fall? Work will be there as it should have been, as it could have been apart from the fall. It will no longer have that, that idea of painful toil. It will be joy, serving each other, glorifying God by using all he's given us to bless others. Now, so I've been thinking in terms of what's going on in heaven right now. Has C.S. Lewis written some new books? Yeah. Has Bach come up with some new music? Yeah. So I'll uh, have inventors come up with new inventions, things like that. Well, again, uh, again, I think heaven will not be uh, just boredom. It will be meaningful, productive activity, serving others, blessing them by the way we work. So, so that's work in terms of what I see a biblical perspective, creation, thought, redemption, consummation. I want to move now to, well, what about in terms of other Christians, other times, other places? How have they seen work? Because let, let's check our interpretation of Scripture by people in other times, other places. But I would just say in, in terms of this, I lived three years in Brazil as a missionary. I learned more about America during those three years than the previous 30 when you have a point of comparison, oh, I like this about America. Uh, they don't do this in America. In Brazil, they'll open a store with no change. So if you come to your, the first customer, either you have exact change or you wait so someone else comes. That's crazy. We don't do that in the U.S. Yeah. So I was grateful for America, those types of things. Well, uh, so Christian, another, as they read Scripture, what did they do? Well, sadly, early on, there was a loss of a healthy work ethic. In the, the, third, the fourth century, the Roman emperor became a Christian, and Christian became the lawful religion. There was no longer persecution. You almost had to be a church member. Well, with that type of situation, Commitment dropped because there's no cost to pay. There's no, no cost of discipleship. Some said, but I want my, my life to count for something. I really want to follow Christ whole more. In that culture, recommendation was follow what they called the counsel of perfection. What Jesus said to the rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. So they said, well, I'll take a vow of poverty, chastity, and I'll become a monk. And they said, this is vocation. If you want a vocation, become a monk, a priest, a nun, that type of religious work. And to this day, in Catholic circles, to have a vocation, be called to be a monk, a nun, they thought that's vocation. The rest of us are second-tier citizens. Well, Luther rejected that. He said, all lawful work that you do to glorify God, bless your neighbor, it's vocation. And we have this, the, the Protestant work ethic. And it is interesting uh, that in the countries that followed the Protestants, they did develop more rapid economically after the Reformation than did Catholic compared 
Germany, Switzerland, England, Netherlands, with Spain, Portugal, France, Italy. Protestants develop more because they saw their work as important to God, marriage to God, those types of things. Now, this was especially developed among the Puritans. Now, Puritans get a bad press. Yeah? To call someone a Puritan is not a good thing. Yeah? But they were serious about being Christians, and they had the idea of being diligent in your work, industrious. They, they had all type of lawful work as a vocation. Surprisingly, they also emphasized moderation in work by their practice of the Sabbath. On their idea of the Sabbath, no work whatsoever. Now, we'll talk more about this in a second because we need a theology of leisure alongside our theology of work. And the Puritans can give us some help here. So uh, Reformation was a, a good thing. We got back on track. But then, in the Enlightenment, we secularized the work ethic. Now, again, do, do Americans today still have a strong work ethic? What do you say? Who says yes? We still have a strong work ethic. Who would say yes? Who would say no? Okay, we've got the notice happening here. So we, we see this work ethic declining. And again, I think the, the older generation always thinks that the younger generation, yeah. they don't work like we do. Well, there may be something, but I think the more important change is the reason why people work hard. Now, to be honest, in terms of looking at the number of weeks of vacation, Europeans are way, way ahead. They take their vacation time seriously, 10, 12 weeks a year. Americans, two to three, maybe. So on some scales, we still do work harder, but the reason why we no longer to glorify God, listen, the reason we work hard, get ahead, get rich, retire early, those types of things. So Ben Frank said, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. So he says, work hard not to glorify God and bless others, to make yourself wealthy. And I think that's the motivation for most Americans today, if they work hard, now they, they some may, but more than others, if they do so, they do that to get wealthy. Now, here's the, the, the catch. If you work hard as a Christian, you will probably prosper. John Wesley noticed this. He said, I, I, I went these people to Christ. They quit drinking, quit gambling. They want better things for the good. So the, they work hard and they prosper. He said, and as they, they do that, they find the truth of Jesus saying, hard for rich men in the kingdom. So here's what's happened among evangelical prosperity. As we've come to Christ, we work hard and we prosper. And as we prosper, our growth begins to decline. I'm a member of a Southern Baptist church, and the last 15 years we have seen slow but steady decline. Now, there may be various factors involved there, but Jesus did say it's hard for rich men in the kingdom. So how do we overcome this? So we, we want to work hard. God says, you know, do you work with, it was actually work for Christ. You, you, you want to give it all you have. If you do that and you prosper, are you courting danger there? Now, again, we know that Jesus is hard, but most of us, well, I'm going to take that chance, Lord. Yeah. Give me the riches. I'll, I'll take the chance there. Well, Wesley said, 
you should work hard, make all you can, but then he said, give all you can. And so Wesley didn't leave much behind to his kids. And I struggle with this. I want to leave something to my kids, but how much is too much? And if I do that, will it tempt them to trust money and not God? So, so this is a paradox for us as Christians. Historically, we have prospered. Christians, when they become a Christian, they do. They work harder. They quit drinking and gambling and doing foolish stuff. And they tend to prosper economically. And with that, they encounter that danger of, again, losing your focus on God, those types of things. Well, let me move on. I'm about to run out of time here. So, uh, again, we talk about the effect of uh, women in terms of women working. Used to be women worked alongside their husbands because husbands didn't go to work. They worked where they lived. Family farm, shop, those stuff. But in the 20th century, as we go to work, that's left women out, and there's been some reaction there. But again, women should be workers, but not only workers at home. Proverbs 31, and the wife there, she had all types of outside interests. You know? She had textiles and real estate and all those types of things, and so uh, that's women today. But let me move to kind of the, the key ideas in terms of some applications of the, the goodness. I want to talk for a second uh, about having a balancing theology of leisure alongside our theology of work. So at work, we want to work hard, do a good job. But on the seventh day, God rested. Now, God wasn't tired. Why do you rest? I think as a pattern for us. And so I think alongside a, a robust theology of work, yeah, a good theology of leisure. So in terms of, of what should we do in terms of the Sabbath day? that commitment to honor the Sabbath day. Now, some say, what's well, the seventh day? So seventh day Adventists say you should worship on the seventh day. The majority view for Christians has been Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. So on, on Sunday, that's the day that we do no work. We reserve that for worship, those types of things, worship rest, those types of things. There are some that say that Sabbath commitment, that was for Israel, not for the church. Does it apply to us? My view is shaped by Colossians 2, 16 and 17. You can look at those verses for a second. Colossians 2, 16, 17. Paul says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So, so Sabbath was a shadow. Reality is found in Christ. I think here's the idea. Our Sabbath rest was accomplished by Jesus. We rest in him. He fulfilled the Sabbath for us, and so he gives us the true Sabbath rest, the rest of faith. So I don't think that Sabbath is a command for us anymore, but there's still value in practicing what I call a Sabbath discipline. So my practice since my college years has been to take from Saturday evening to Sunday evening and not do anything that I call work. I don't grade student papers. I don't respond to student emails, okay? Uh, I don't do yard work, okay? I don't shop because shopping is work for me. Yeah. Now, for my wife, 
Retail therapy. She loves it. You know, she's, she thrives shopping. Well, that's, that's not work for but it is work for me. So I, I don't do what I call work. Why? To remind myself, something is more important than work. Worship is. More important to worship. I make time for worship on that Sabbath. Make time for relationships. Make time for what I call recreation. Look at that word, recreation. Recreation. For a Christian, leisure should be recreative, renewing, restoring those types of things. And so I think there's a biblical basis for this, not only in terms of the Sabbath, but look back to the Old Testament. They had all these festivals. Now, look later, just give me a chapter to look at later. Read Leviticus 23. I may have not done that yet. In that chapter, nine times on this day, do no regular work. These were festivals, feast day. They feasted. They gathered in Jerusalem, had parties there. Jesus was, was called a glutton and a drunkard because he was involved in those types of things. Well, those types of things, there should be in a Christian life a rhythm of work and rest, work and uh, uh, then leisure. But, but Christian leisure, some things our culture does for leisure are not recreative, they're destructive. So don't do things that are destructive, do things that are genuinely recreative. Well, I, I got to wrap this up in a second and make some time for, for questions. I want to look at just a couple of issues in terms of practical perspective. Uh, how, now, just one thing that to be aware of, there's tons of stuff out there. I think I gave you some websites and things like that. Faith and work. In our day, more interested in Christians integrating their faith with their work than in previous generations. So there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a group called C12 in Raleigh, Christian businessmen, saying we don't be truly Christian businessmen. They meet together, helping each other. Uh, uh, there's corporate chaplains of America in Wake Forest, those types of things. So there's resources out there. But I want to mention a couple of issues in terms of work and unemployment, times of recession. Some people, again, their company downsizes and they lose their job. Does the Bible speak to issues of unemployment? Well, again, it assures us that God, again, he says, I've never seen the righteous begging bread, those types of things. But there are examples. For example, there were droughts and famines. Uh, Abraham went down to Egypt. Uh, Naomi and her husband went down to uh, Moab. So people had to, to, there was times when people were were facing difficult times. Our our confidence is, again, look at Philippians 4, where Paul describes how we respond to these situations. Philippians 4 begins with a verse we often quote. Again, uh, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But look at the preceding verses 11 and 12. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know it is to be in need. I know it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, with living in plenty or in want. Trusting in Christ should sustain us even through times of unemployment, recession, difficulty. We trust God to take care of us. Now, the church should come alongside us there. And again, not just in terms of material help, but networking with each other. Does someone know of a job I could take? So if you lose your job, uh, don't go to the one that's go here. Uh, uh, networking with people, each other, those types of things. And in the meantime, while you're out of work, don't sit at home and do nothing. 
Come say, say, Pastor, is some some volunteer work I can do? Because you're made to be a worker and not a sitter at home doing nothing. So if you lost your job, don't sit around and do nothing. Find some volunteer work. And the last thing I'll mention is work and retirement. Again, I was talking with some, some brothers beforehand, and the word retirement doesn't occur in the Bible. Uh, not a biblical idea. Now, retiring from a job may be necessary in some cases because our bodies become uh, more uh, frail and those types of things, they're corruptible. may be necessary to retire from a job, but not retire from work. And even retiring, my, my brother gave me a good phrase. He said, you need to retire to something. If you're retiring from something, retire to something. And so think of what you want to do with your time. Once you retire, you'll have a lot of time free to do other types of work. Non-paying work, perhaps, but still things that can glorify God and bless others. My own personal ambition, I'm retiring this, this July, I want to be a very active grandfather. Now, my own story, when I was five years old, my mother had a nervous breakdown. And we went to live with my grandparents. And my grandparents raised me from four to 18 until I graduated from high school. And I, I don't think I was ever properly grateful to sacrifice them. Yeah, I want to be with my mom and dad, yeah? not with a guardian. But they sacrificed incredibly to care for me. I want to pay that forward. I want to be that type of grandparent in my grandkids' lives. And so that's my ambition. Well, I think I about run out of time now. I think maybe we've gone over a little bit. In fact, but we have some time for questions, Dalton. Okay. Yeah, a few minutes.